Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. It is good to be together tonight. Let's go to our Father in prayer, and then we will get right into our lesson tonight on dealing with depression. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, as we approach Your throne of grace and mercy tonight, we're grateful that You have allowed us to gather once again with this body of believers. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Ninth Avenue congregation. Thank you for her leadership. Thank you for the members that work so diligently here. Thank you for the attitude and the atmosphere that we have found here amongst your people. And Lord, we pray that your guidance will be upon them as they continue to strive to make an impact in this community and in the kingdom abroad for your glory. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to worship you and Lord, it is our prayer that you are well pleased. We never want this to become about us. We always want this to be about you. And so, Lord, we do ask that you receive our worship as we do so in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to stand before your people and to proclaim your word on such a serious subject. And Lord, I don't know what everybody's going through right now, even here in this room. But you do. You know the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that through a study of this subject tonight, there can be those who are encouraged and those who are uh, challenged maybe to, to go beyond their comfort when it comes to helping those who struggle with depression. Heavenly Father, above all, we thank you for always being faithful. We know at times it's hard for us to see that. Not your faithfulness. It's just hard for us to see through the cloud that exists over our eyes and in our life due to our circumstances, sometimes externally and sometimes internally. But Heavenly Father, we pray you continue to be patient with us. Continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. And Lord, we pray that we will continue to grow to trust you more and more every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I told you briefly in the beginning that we're going to be looking at depression tonight. You know, it's interesting when I think about the subject of depression, I'm reminded of key cases that have come out, key incidences in culture that have kind of sparked a discussion on the seriousness of this particular subject. I'm mindful of the events surrounding the death of Robin Williams back in 2014, an individual who, by all external concepts, appeared to be happy on the outside. He had no problem at least trying to make other people laugh. But we also know this, that internally he had, the way we phrase that is, he had demons. Now what that means is, not demon uh, inhabiting his body, but what that means is that sometimes for us, what happens on the external does not always reveal what's going on internally. And we know in that particular event, the idea is that he was struggling with something that you and I would have never maybe never understood just based upon his externals. I'm also mindful of last February, February of 2018, when Nicholas Cruz, a 19-year-old, went into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, and he brought a rifle with him and, and killed 17 people and injured 17 others. Individuals look at his particular case and they would say, well, on the outside, it, it appears clear-cut. You had a raging teenager who simply was acting out in his anger. I'll have you know that this is the most deadly school shooting that has ever occurred in in the soil or on the soil of America, surpassing that of Columbine. You look at his particular case, and I just want to throw some things out there to you and in no way making excuses for for what he did or what others may do who who take the lives of, of their peers or individuals that they don't know, but... You think about Nicholas Cruz's life and you begin to understand that there were some red flags in his life 
for quite some time. He had bragged about on social media wanting to be a school shooter. And you think, why didn't the authorities catch that before it got to this point? He had been a child who was adopted. And and I'm not here to say that that is a negative thing in any way, shape or form. But I will lay this before you. I have never struggled with the concept of my birth parents not wanting me or my birth parents not able to, to raise me. I've never struggled with the idea, will anybody choose to bring me into their family? And will they really choose to bring me into their family? Or will I always be kind of that other child who lives in our house? You see, Nicholas Cruz was adopted. It also is of interest, at least as I study these cultural events, to consider the fact that this shooting on that particular day in February took place pretty soon after the death of his adoptive mother. And I look at all these pieces of a puzzle as we put them together and we say, why would an individual go into a school with a rifle and start shooting his peers or shooting those innocent young people? And I cannot help but think that even though the the top of the sea may say one thing, below the surface it may say something else. You see, there was a time in our life that we worked for a, a children's home up in Spring Hill, Tennessee. It's called the Tennessee Children's Home. And while we worked there, my parents were house parents and I was on the staff. I was called direct care staff. Uh, what that meant was I, I sat up with the, the houses. Uh, basically, the level two had to have somebody up 24 hours a day. And so I would come on the shift around 11 and I would get off about 7 the next morning. The kids were supposed to be in their rooms, so I'd never really interacted on that level. But on another side of that, I was also a part of the summer program, and I was a lifeguard. Can you believe that by looking at me? at one, This is a lifeguard's physique. I didn't know if you knew that or not. But I was a lifeguard at this facility, and, and I had the opportunity to interact with these young men near, during the summer program. And, of course, we had the young men who lived with us. And I will tell you this, that that oftentimes... We are victims, and I, I don't want to paint this in a way that you, you're not staying with me. We're victims at times of circumstance. And then at other times, we are uh, victims of our own created circumstances. In other words, we are the consequence at times of others' actions, and we suffer the consequences of our own actions. These young men who were at the children's home who lived with us, they, they oftentimes had been passed around from, from mother to grandmother, quite possibly to aunts and uncles. And, and it was one of those situations that even if they lived with their mothers, uh, oftentimes these, these mothers would choose boyfriends over their own sons. There were some occasions where even if a boy lived in a home with his biological parents, there were some cases where the parents, in particular the father, would invite friends over to the house only to know and to understand that his friends were abusing his own son sexually. There were young people who showed up with burn marks on their hands because that's where their loved ones would put cigarettes out when they needed to discipline their children. And in this particular environment, we looked at their behavior and we saw aggressive gang members who had been kicked out of alternative school. That's how they came into what we called state's custody. And in all of that, you would say, well, why did they choose that? And I would offer this to you. Sometimes we make decisions the best that we can based upon the way that others treat us. Sometimes we facilitate that on our own from internal reasons. The reason I bring that up is because the subject of depression is one that is very broad in its nature. It's been said before that it is the common cold of mental disorders. And while we may not look at depression as a mental disorder, the truth is that that depression is a mental disorder. Now, it's not a mental disorder that someone cannot uh, overcome with, with help and at times even possibly medication. And when we talk about depression, we're not talking about a temporary bad day. We're not talking about where you had a bad day at work and the lawnmower broke and the car needs repaired and the bills are coming in and you just feel overwhelmed. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a mental state. A mental state that reflects 
the circumstances around, but it also quite possibly reflects the circumstances internally of what someone is going through. You see, when you and I think about this concept of depression, people with depression can have mountaintop days. And so you would look and say, well, people with depression are always down and they're always negative. And that's not the case. Sometimes individuals who have depression and suffer with depression can have mountaintop days. But then you turn around and they also have the dry valleys where the water doesn't flow. And it seems like nothing can go right. Now, you would look at this and say, well, surely the dry valleys and depressed states are greater than the mountaintop experiences. And you would be right in that. Because when depression sinks in, it clouds every aspect of who you are. That's why when you look at study after study after study, the reason depression belongs in a a seminar series of Learn to Discern, that not only do we deal with hot-button cultural issues, but we as God's children need to be able to deal with issues pertaining to emotional well-being as well. I thought it was interesting that if you think that this is not a very big deal, that it's been estimated before that between 30 and 40 million individuals in America struggle with this every year. If you struggle with depression, and that's the thing, I don't know what, what you individually may be experiencing. I don't know if you've experienced it at some level, but maybe not at others. I don't know if it's come upon you after the death of a spouse or maybe after a difficult situation with health. I've been told that when individuals have open heart surgery, that depression actually can be a byproduct of major surgeries like that. And you look at that and you say, well, sometimes that's not that they just chose it. And it's not that they're just a rotten person. Sometimes life just gets hard. And here's what I know. Haleyville, Alabama is no different than any other town. There are individuals in your town that you work with regularly that struggle with depression. They struggle with why is this happening to me? How do I get out of it? How do I see things differently? Why is it that that things are constantly bad? Why is it that I'm constantly negative? And I will tell you this. They're looking. They're looking for help. They're looking for someone to redirect them. They're looking for someone who might be able to lend a shoulder. You see, depression, and we'll look at this here in a moment, because the structure of this particular lesson is twofold. Number one, I want to speak to those who do not have depression. And I want to talk to you about helping others with depression. But number two, I would like to speak to those who may struggle with depression. You see, because I know there are a lot of people in America who do. And in the areas that I deal with amongst young people and also at times amongst the elderly, you see, depression happens to hit those who are in life transitions. I found it interesting because when you start talking about life transitions, if you're not careful, everybody says, well, Joe, aren't we all in a life transition in some way, shape or form? And if so, I understand that. I mean, after all, my children are continually uh, growing up. Aaron and I are continually getting younger as our children get older. Um, you know, we've got a son who's going to start driving here before too long. Um, you know, some of you have already expressed some of your transitions in life with children who are getting married. I've heard stories already of grandchildren and the joys that happen with transitions. And so in some way... We are all in a period of transition. However, there are two transitions that occur in life that this seems to affect more than others. One is the time period during the teen years, and the other is the time period during the elderly years. And when you look at issues such as suicide, those two segments of the population have the highest rates of suicide as well. So I will tell you this, this is not a a joke, this is not a little matter. When you see statistics like you see on the screen that that psychologists and counselors would give us statistics that say one out of every eight teenagers in America have been clinically diagnosed as being depressed, that tells you how prevalent that is amongst some generations. You go on to look at the idea of college students, roughly one out of every four college students will have been or will be clinically depressed at some point in time in their life. And maybe you've heard the stories. I know that when I was a freshman, I went to Texas Christian University there in in the Fort Worth, Texas area. 
and lived in a dorm. And I remember that there was a particular day where we knew something was different on our dorm floor. I didn't know the young man. But whatever happened in his life, he came to the conclusion that life was no longer able to be lived by him on our dorm floor my freshman year at college. That's not an unheard of concept. Sometimes people who struggle with depression, they don't know how to handle it in a way that is, is, is beneficial to them. And it's hard to see it. I guess if I could say anything, it would be the concept of when Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, why did Judas go and hang himself? I mean, after all, Peter had denied Jesus, but Peter didn't go out and hang himself. Why did Judas... Why didn't Judas see that that the blood of Jesus could have even covered his sin? You see, sometimes when the cloud is thick, it's very difficult to see that there's any way out. What you see on the screen before you are, are, I guess you could say, characteristic traits of those who are clinically depressed or what may be on that list. And in case you're wondering, I wonder if I just struggle with multiple bad days or if I actually have maybe a bigger issue, then when you start to look at concepts like continual sadness, we're not talking about kind of having a bad day. We're talking about a state of existence. When we talk about things of pessimistic nature, why is it that everything's bad? It doesn't matter what happens. There's always a negative that is found in there. It could be a child who's at a t-ball game who's never hit the ball off the tee before and the child swings the bat and the ball goes flying off the tee and everybody else is cheering. But the individual who might struggle with depression will find a reason why there was a negative in that situation. You and I might look at that and say, well, no, that's just because they're negative people. And you know what? You may be right. But it also is a characteristic trait of those who struggle with depression to always find something wrong even when the circumstance is good. You go down the list, there's a sense of constant state of hopelessness. The idea of apathy or inertia, if you've ever struggled to get off the couch. If you've ever just, you couldn't, I mean it wasn't that you didn't want to, you literally just could not find the motivation. If you had the motivation, you didn't have the strength because depression zaps you of strength. Apathy is the the lack of care. It's the take it or leave it. Inertia is the lack of movement. So individuals who struggle with depression sleep a lot, but yet they never wake up rested. They don't want to move very much, but it's not because they're sick or not because there's a physical ailment. It literally is they have no reason to do such. You go down the list, loss of energy, loss of interest, low self-esteem, self-criticism, feeling guilt or shame. And you can find out that at some point in time, chances are all of us could say, well, is that me? Well, loss of appetite is not me. The only way that would be me is if I were physically sick, right? But there have been times in my life that I've even wondered, am I going through something or if I'm just having a negative day? Am I just having a negative period of life? Now, here's what I want you to know. If you see yourself on that screen, it doesn't mean you're broken. Sometimes we don't talk about mental and emotional subjects because we're afraid that if we do so, then we might discover something about ourselves. The good news is that you still serve a God who's able to overcome whatever is going on in your life. I've mentioned to you already at times the causes of depression to an extent. And their psychologists and counselors will talk about depression that stems from within. I would call that a biological concept. I don't want to belittle in any way, shape or form depression at a chemical level. You see, sometimes your brain and your body will produce chemicals. And those chemicals can give you rewards. And those chemicals can make you feel good. Dopamine is one of those chemicals that you don't have to talk to in your brain that says, hey brain, go ahead and give me a dose of dopamine. Dopamine is your reward center of your brain. It's what makes you go, ah, that was good. Some individuals say it's what's called the runner's high. I don't know about the runner's high. All I know about is the oxygen that is needed when you run. But if you've ever been a runner, you understand that if you, you run, you run, you run, some people who run and they exercise like that will talk about how it makes them feel good and they talk about a runner's high. That's because the brain releases dopamine. Unfortunately, dopamine can be released for many things. 
We'll talk about later this week learning to discern the subject of pornography. Dopamine is the reward center of your brain that also rewards when pornography is looked at. See, there are chemical reactions that are occurring in your body by God's design. And sometimes those chemicals can either be produced in an overabundant manner, and sometimes they can be produced in an underabundant manner. And sometimes then that's why psychologists might prescribe medication for a time. And I want you to hear me say this. There's nothing wrong with you needing to take something to help with that. And here's why. God made your body to function in a certain way. He's allowed the medical field to advance to the way that it has. And we've been blessed to to have medicines for diabetes. Right? And whoever is a diabetic, they have to take the diabetic medicine, the insulin. And that's just a part of their life. Individuals who may have heart disease may have to take high blood pressure medication. And that's just a part of life. And I would propose this to you, that the diabetic should not feel bad about taking insulin. The individual who has heart problems should not feel bad about having to take high blood pressure medication. And the individual who has depression who needs medicine should not feel guilty about having to use that either. It literally is an illness. That for a time, an individual may need help with. So if that's who you are, I don't want you to walk away going, Oh, that preacher, he was just all about God. And if I only trusted God more, then I wouldn't need any other help. Here's the reality. If that's all I did and stood up before you and said, If all you had to do was trust God more and you don't need any more help, that's disingenuous. You would look at me and say, That's not real. That sure is preachery, but it's not real. Well, you'll come to find out about me. I'm a rather real guy. And so I want to be real with these subjects. So we understand that depression can stem from an internal biological concept. But we also understand that it can happen from outside the body concepts, such as stress. Do you know that stress can lead to depression? Did you know that helplessness and hopelessness that is learned can lead to depression? And those are shaped by the way that you view your circumstances. We understand that sometimes you can control circumstances and sometimes you can't. If you think you can control every circumstance, tell that to the mother whose child was hit by a drunk driver and is no longer on this earth. She didn't control that circumstance. You can't control every circumstance. But you have to respond to the circumstances which you are presented with. And sometimes individuals look at those circumstances and they say, what's the point? There's no benefit. There's no hope. And sometimes we cause our own depression. When we do not line up with the expectations that we have. Now for you and I, individuals who are trying to follow the word of God, we know that it's not our standard that we follow, but it is the word of God that we follow. And so if the Bible teaches a particular concept in a particular manner of truth on a subject, but my life does not line up behind that subject, then sometimes the expectation is not met with reality and it can cause problems in my life. That's why when we talk about repenting of sins and we talk about peace that can be restored, we're not only talking about peace that can be restored between you and God, we're talking about peace that can be restored in your life when your expectations match your reality. That's why I tell you this, that those who live according to the will of God as their standard, it's not that they're perfect. But it is with an understanding that I'm trying to be drawn into discipleship behind Jesus Christ and by the grace of God, not based upon my goodness, I will have forgiveness of sin and be brought back into a right relationship with Him. It's interesting how depression happens because of sin and guilt. And individuals who fall into addictive habits, individuals who are alcoholics, Individuals who, who, who abuse drugs, be it uh, over-the-counter or otherwise. Individuals who are addicted to things like pornography. And they are members of the Lord's church. What happens is the expectation doesn't match the reality. And so what happens, they live and cross with each other. And they're never at a state of peace. And sometimes the guilt and the shame actually can lead to hopelessness and lead to anxiety, and lead to low self-esteem, to which they say, what's the point? And then they may actually give up and walk away. You see, depression 
happens for many reasons. But I want you to understand this tonight as you think about those of us who may not struggle with depression. Those of us who may struggle with difficulties, but not necessarily with depression. I want you to consider what is our response. Next, we'll talk about those who who have depression. And I want to offer hope to you, those of you who may be struggling with depression. But for a moment, I want you to consider... I want you to consider an illustration that occurred back in the 1980s. And it's an illustration that is true. This isn't one of those preacher tales. This is the true concept behind why the United States Coast Guard does what they do today. You see, there was a ship that was crossing the ocean back on February the 10th of 1981. They had set out from Virginia on their way to Massachusetts with 25,000 ton cargo of of coal. And while they were crossing the the ocean, going down the, the ocean, going up the ocean rather, the idea was that they were met with 20 and 40 foot swells. Now you would think an ocean liner should not have any problem with that. However, what the captain of the ship started to realize was that the boat wasn't recovering well in between swells. And they continued on their way, thinking that maybe it would pass. However, what happened was, eventually it did not pass. Eventually there was a problem with the ship, and eventually an SOS went out. Now, when the SOS went out, the United States Coast Guard responded. And the way they responded was based upon their training at the time. And their training at the time is these these sailors who were all experienced individuals that they actually were in the ocean at this point having been tossed from the freight liner. They were in the ocean and the Coast Guard responds and here's the way that they responded. You see, the Coast Guard was trained at this point in time to have a helicopter come out and hover above the ocean and they would drop a basket down into the water. And what they would do then was they would tell the victims who were in the ocean to grab a hold of the basket or get in the basket and we will pull you out of the water. The problem is by the time they got there, hypothermia had already started setting in. And so when they lowered the basket to the ground and they yelled commands at individuals who were in the dire situation, they said, get in the basket. But what they realized was that these individuals could not comprehend well enough, nor had the strength to put themselves into the basket. You can imagine the frustration of the Coast Guard. If you'll only get in the basket, we will pull you out of the water. And so what happened was the Coast Guard quickly realized that they were in in trouble because they were not equipped, they were not trained for the water rescue. So what they did was they called for the United States Navy to come in to send out a dive team. Now, the United States Navy had other training than the Coast Guard had. They had individuals that could be trained to jump out of the helicopters into the water to help put people in the basket. They did that. But I guess statistics would say that they saved very few of the individuals. As a matter of fact, out of the 34 that were in the water, 31 of them perished. Now what happened after that though, the Coast Guard changed what they did. You see, their concept was if we lower a basket and tell you to climb into the basket, that you ought to be able to climb into the basket. And then we will pull you out from the helicopter. The problem is, upon reflecting of this and the government getting in play, there was an actual uh, uh, an act that came about that is entitled the Coast Guard Authorization Act of 1984. And that Coast Guard Authorization Act of 1984 says this, The Commandant of the Coast Guard shall use such sums as are necessary from amounts appropriated for the operational maintenance of the Coast Guard to establish a helicopter rescue swimmer program for the purpose of training selected Coast Guard personnel in rescue swimming skills. In other words, before that time, their concept of rescuing people was, let's lower a basket. After that time, they realized something. You can't save people unless you get into the water with them. For those of us who do not struggle with depression, I need you to hear me say this. 
If you have loved ones in your life, members of this congregation, individuals in this community who fit the description of what I've just told you, the last thing they need from you is a lecture about if they would just get happy, they would have no problems. I've never known an individual in all of my time of counseling studies and what they call pastoral counseling and of interviewing psychologists or interviewing those who are counselors to say all they need is one more good sermon. If you'll just give them one more good sermon, Joe, that'll snap them out of it. I've never heard people say that. What I have heard people say is this. When individuals can't get into the basket, you continually yelling at them to get in the basket doesn't do anything. That you actually have to realize they can't do this on their own. And not only can they not do it on their own, but they need someone to get into the water with them. Now, don't hear me say they need you to have depression with them. But they need you not to try to help them from afar. Because when you look at individuals who have depression, they already feel isolated. Even though they're in a room full of people, they feel isolated. And if you lower a basket, if you simply say this, Hey, if you ever need anything, let me know. That's a modern concept of lowering a basket. I've done that before. I've been guilty of that before. Somebody is struggling with something and maybe I go visit and I leave and say, Hey, if you ever need anything, let me know. Let me encourage you, don't say that to people. Because I want you to think about who who has all the burden, who carries the weight of the burden when you walk away and say, Hey, if you ever need anything, let me know. You and I walk away feeling good about ourselves because we've offered to help. The only problem is, in order to get the help, the person has to ask you for the help. When you say, hey, if you need anything, let me know, you really haven't helped them. You've only made yourself feel better. Don't do that. Here's what you do. You pay attention to what they need. You say, Joe, how do I know what they need? Well, a mother who goes to the hospital and has a baby and she's about to get out of the hospital and she's already got two youngins at home. Maybe the grandparents or somebody's been taking care of the babies and this young mother and young father are coming home. Let me ask you a question. Do you think might, they might need dinner? Maybe a meal? You don't have to go to them and say, hey, if you need a meal, just call me and let me know. Because you've already been in tune with their circumstances and even if they don't need your meal... You know what you've done? You've shown them love. And that's what they needed more than the physical food that you would offer them. Individual who's struggling with loneliness or struggling with anxiety, they don't need you to wait for them to ask you, hey, come spend time with me. You know what they need? They need you to say, hey, are you free Thursday? I guess. I don't know anything. Good. I'm going to show up at your house. I'm picking you up at six. We're going to go out to dinner. You and I, my treat. And we're just going to spend some good time together. They didn't need to give them the opportunity to say, no, I can't. I have something. The idea is this. When people struggle with depression, you've got to realize something. You can't just lower the basket. Because if they could pull themselves out, they would have already done so. So you've got to get in the water. And I would offer this to you as well. Oftentimes it takes more than one person. Individuals who struggle with depression, it's not that you are their Savior. Jesus Christ is their Savior. And they need you to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this life to them. They already know that Jesus loves them. The question is not whether they know Jesus loves them. The question is right now that's not pulling me out. And so what I would encourage you is this. Never underestimate the power of the force of the family of God. If somebody's struggling, you and someone else, go to them. Go talk to them. Go take them to dinner. Go visit with them. Go lift their countenance. What you're going to find, that's a very biblical principle. When Jesus would send out the 70, he would send them out two by two. Why didn't he send them out one by one? Why did he send the apostles out at times? The twelve, two by two, why not one by one? And the answer is because when one is cold, that two together will be better to keep warm. When one falls down, the other is there to pick them up. And a cord of three is tightly woven and not able to be broken very easily. That's an Old Testament concept, but laid out in a New Testament principle. Your relationships matter and their relationships with you matter. So may I encourage you in this. If you do not struggle with depression, understand you still have an obligation to those who do. 
Now, if you do struggle with depression, I want you to, to listen to this tonight. And I don't know whether or not it, it brings encouragement, but I want you to know something. I want you to know, number one, that your life is not over because you struggle with depression. I said before, you're not broken. You know, I'm not saying that you don't need help. I'm just saying that you're not, you're not irreparable. This isn't a situation where it's helpless and hopeless, even though I know that's what you see. Because throughout life, throughout the Bible, what we have, what we've learned about God is this. He can take the dire situation and He can restore that to healthy situation. You see, because you and I serve a God of restoration. I don't know if you recognize that's who you serve tonight. Recently at Florence Boulevard, we, uh, we had a, a Sunday morning Bible class on the subject of the names of God. And I will tell you this, there are more names of God found throughout the pages of the Bible than we have time to cover in a short 13-week Bible class curriculum setting. Now, some individuals will say, well, no, Joe, there's only about seven or eight. That's what the Jewish individuals would say. But when you start getting into names like God Almighty, which is the first name that the patriarchs would know God by, not by Yahweh, not Jehovah, but God Almighty, there's something about that statement. There's something about the statement, I am. There's something about the statement, Jehovah Jireh. There's something about the statement, El Shaddai. And all of that shows you various aspects of the God whom you serve. You serve an amazing God. And He's not as clear cut that you can put Him in a box and walk away and say, I know everything there is to know about God now. Because He's beyond your comprehension. He's beyond mine. But what I do know of this about the God that we serve is that He is in the restoration business. That's what He does. In Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 4, actually verses 1 through 4, the Bible will reveal this aspect of, of the restoration nature of God when the Bible reads this way. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that his, he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do. Then it shall be, when he sins and becomes guilty, that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found. Now you look at that and say, well, Joe, what does that have to do with God's concept of restoration? And I would offer this to you. All the way back into the laws of the Old Testament, God would instruct his followers that there was a restitution concept when it came to the way they interacted with each other. Now, there was a restoration concept with they, the way they would interact with God as well. And oftentimes, that restitution, that concept of, hey, if you, you're found guilty of robbery, then you restore what you, you robbed. If you're found guilty of extortion, you restore what you extorted. If you took a deposit and didn't... The idea in the Old Testament was you needed to restore what wasn't right. That's a God thing. Why did he instruct his people to do that? Because that's who God is. You say, I don't know. I don't know about that. Because you're talking then that God is in the restoration business when it comes to material goods. Well, I want you to look at Job chapter 42. You know the account of Job. Job lost everything. Material possessions. People in his life. Job would sink into, no doubt, great depression. You see, sometimes we look at individuals in the Bible and we say, nobody in the Bible struggled with depression. Oh, yes, they did. Job would struggle with it. Jeremiah would write a book of the Bible called Lamentations. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Elijah had a powerful moment on Mount Carmel before the, the prophets of Baal. But yet when Jezebel came on the scene, Elijah flees to the cave and hides and believes that he's the only one who is left. Jonah didn't appreciate what God did in Nineveh, so he goes and he pouts next to a tree. And you look at the Bible over and over again and you say, people in the Bible struggled with depression? Yes, they did. David struggled. And we'll look at that here in a moment as we conclude. I want you to understand, though, is this, that in the Bible we serve a God who's in the restoring business. And part of that is a restoration of material.
goods. Job chapter 42 and verse 10, the Bible reads this way. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Now, I need you to hear what I'm saying and not read into what I'm not. My, sometimes I, I recognize as a public speaker that I speak in front of numerous individuals who all have filters. And no matter what I'm saying, what I'm saying has to be processed through your filter to come to the conclusions that you conclude. What I don't want you to walk away from here is saying this, that if I've lost $2, God's going to restore $2 to me. If I've lost a car, God's going to restore a car. I don't want you to hear that. But what I do want you to hear is this. There are times when individuals go through catastrophic events in life, such as a house fire. And in that house fire, they lost everything. They lost their furniture. They lost their clothes. They lost their kitchen supplies. They lost their electronics. They lost their house. They lost everything. And you know what happens is eventually somebody comes up and says, Hey, I have an extra refrigerator. I have an extra couch. Hey, I've got clothes that I don't wear. What size are you? Yes, I've got a closet full of them and I only wear about five shirts anyway. Oh, you know what? I don't have what you need, but I tell you what, here's some money. And you know what happens? Oftentimes in our reality today, God restores materially through His people. He doesn't just drop money on you. But when you don't know what you're going to do and where you're going to turn, you know what we have? We have a God who provides. I'll use this as an illustration. I don't mind. I told you my father died in December of this year. My dad was a preacher in Gainesboro, Tennessee. Mom and dad lived in preacher's homes most of all their lives. When dad passed, the congregation has to find a new preacher. And as finding a new preacher, guess what that means? The new preacher may need the house. And so we as a family, I have two other brothers, Wade and Scott, the We were talking with mom, and what are we going to do? Mom was under the assumption she had to leave, and it was causing stress, major stress, on top of losing a spouse. Not long before we were, I guess, up on making a decision, mom, we had been praying about it, wanting to know what to do, and all of a sudden the elders came to my mother and said, hey, here's what's going to happen. One of the elders is going to start preaching. He's not going to take a salary, and you can stay in the house as long as you need it. Now, when you think about God's provision... Some individuals would look at that and say, oh, it's a coincidence. I was having a conversation with somebody today. Do people of faith believe in coincidence or do we believe that when we pray to God that God moves and He acts? If you believe in coincidence and you don't believe in prayer, then why do you ever pray? Do you pray because you have to? Or do you believe that God hears you? You see, God provides and He restores in ways that maybe you and I don't understand. Not only does God restore materially, but I also want you to understand this. God's in a restoration business and He restores individuals out of captivity and back into, uh, I guess, a nation state in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 3. That's what the Bible says when we read this. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. You see, that was a promise made to the children of old that He would restore them as a nation. We go through the list. 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 6. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 14. We know that God is a God who restores physical affirmities. We pray in the hospitals. We pray for God's will to be done, but we pray for healing. Do we really believe that God is in the restoration process when it comes to physical infirmities? The 23rd Psalm says that God is in the restoration of the soul. And the 51st Psalm, verse 12, said God is able to restore the joy of the salvation of an individual. When I tell you all of this, I want you to know something today. I want you to know that when you serve a God who's in the restoration business, it's the same God of the New Testament that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, amongst all the things that we could get worked up and worried about, the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God... And all of these things will be added unto you. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that tonight? Or is that just a verse? Is that just a song? Do you really believe that you serve a God who says, when I set my priorities straight, that He'll take care of the rest of this? I don't know how. And, you know, if I lost a a 38-inch TV, is He going to get me a 60-inch TV? He never promised that He would provide your wants, right? Right? 
but He will take care of your needs. Do you believe that about the God you serve? You see, I do. And tonight, if you struggle with depression, I want you to know this. That the same God I'm describing is still the same God who is in your corner. He still is a God of restoration. He can restore your hope. He can restore your joy. He can restore your peace. He can restore you back to a state of servitude. You see, that's who you serve. When you and I think about this God, I want you to know something that throughout time, there have been individuals who have had many, many storms in life. Some physical, some really tangible, and some more emotional. But what we see throughout the Bible is this, that Jesus was able to calm the storms and to restore peace. And God is able to calm the storms even emotionally. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, the Bible reads this way. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of hope and there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of peace talked about in that one passage. Paul would talk about it this way in Philippians chapter 4 that God is the God of peace and that if you want the peace that comes from God, then you... Make sure you hold fast to His ways. You see, I would offer this to you. In the 43rd Psalm, the passage that you see on the screen before you, and that was read before our lesson began, you find an individual that was hated by many, many people. An individual that in his time as king, there would be only two tribes out of twelve that would line up behind him. His own sons wanted him dead because they wanted the kingdom. He would run, he would be hungry, he would fight, there would be bloodshed. And yet in all of that, David is the one that we would see pin the 43rd Psalm. And in that Psalm, what happens is, David, through all of his difficulties, says that he will still praise God. You see, some people kind of our fair-weather disciples. In other words, they'll praise God when things are going well in life, but, buddy, they'll look for all kinds of reasons to blame God when things aren't. God's not the reason that we suffer hardships. Sometimes we suffer hardships because of our own decisions, and sometimes we suffer hardships because of others' decisions. But what I do know is this, as David would write in the 43rd Psalm, When he would say this, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. I don't know what you've experienced in your life that has led you to where you are on this subject. But what I do know is this. If anyone can relate to you, it is King David. And in King David's deepest, darkest moments, he does not deny the difficulty of his situation. But he also doesn't let go of the goodness of God. He is struggling with the why. But in struggling with the why, he still doesn't leave the fact that I will praise God. You see, you don't have to praise God for your difficulties. Although I will say this... In the New Testament, this is a sermon for another time. A sermon for another time is this. God is at work in your life even through your difficulties. Peter would write to the Christians of the dispersion and he would say this, that there's a fire that they are proofed by. That proofing is not a proving of their faith. It's a proofing, proofing. When items go through a fire, what happens is the dross is burned away. 
And what happens on the other end of the fire is the gem or the precious metal is more pure after it passes through the fire. See, many of us in our lives, we pray for God to take us out of the fires instead of recognizing that God is doing great work in our life through the fires. And I'll be real with you. There have been times in my life that I've wanted it to leave. My prayers oftentimes have changed as I come to a better understanding of this. And it's not so much, God, take away the fire. It's, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, if it's up to you, hurry up. But whatever it is, Lord, help my faith to be bigger than it is now. God can do amazing work in your life through your difficulties. And it may be today, if you're struggling with depression, I don't want to say that God's causing that, but what I am saying is this. He's giving you the opportunity today that not to deny the difficulties, but to hold fast to Him through the difficulties. And that's where you're going to be stronger. That's where your faith is going to grow. That's where your relationship with Him will flourish. And maybe tonight you're saying, Joe, I want that, but I can't do it alone. And I'm here to tell you that we are understanding that we cannot help you from a helicopter. That we've got to get in the water with you. But we need you to let us know if you need us to get in the water with you. Maybe some individuals know. Maybe the eldership knows. And maybe you're not to the point of needing to or wanting to come down front and say, Hey, I'm just going through some tough times in my life right now. I don't know if I'm depressed, but I know this. I need to be surrounded by my Christian family. And I need the prayers of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what I know. This good body of believers will surround you. They will surround you and they will pray with you. I will pray with you. And these individuals who are here in this community, long after I'm gone, they're going to be the ones that are helping you day by day, step by step. You know why? Because that's what the church does. The church isn't somebody who just shows up on Sundays and Wednesdays. The church is there as a family Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And that's who you have here tonight. And so maybe tonight you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you're ready to obey the gospel. You're ready to confess Jesus as Lord, repent of your sins, and be baptized for the remission of your sin, recognizing that your journey begins by putting your hand in the hand of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, you're here tonight, but you recognize that, you know, in my walk, I haven't been walking as closely with Him. If David, if David can go through what David did and yet still praise Him, then in my own personal life, I've been blaming God for a lot instead of, understanding that my praise is still is still needing to go his way through my difficulties. Maybe he isn't the big bad God that I have come to conclude. Maybe he's doing something amazing in my life and my attitude and my outlook has been off. I don't know what your need is tonight, but I know this much. God has allowed you to come here at this moment. Maybe it's for the purpose of this invitation. And if that be the case, then I would encourage you this. Do not deny the work of the Spirit in your life the Word of God has gone forth. If there's anything that I know, the Bible tells me that when the Word of God goes out, that it will not come back empty. 